This episode of Undistracted is brought to you by our sponsor, Chambord, an all-natural black raspberry liqueur produced in the Loire Valley of France. Y'all know Valentine's Day is coming up, which means it's time to break out the chocolate and the candles and, of course, your Chambord. Whether you're trying to impress a new boo, create a romantic dinner for your partner, or just, you know, celebrate yourself or your homegirls or whatever, we love that around here. Chambord can turn a simple mixed drink into a a one-of-a-kind cocktail. Take the Chambord Bramble, for example. It is a beautiful red cocktail with gin, lemon, simple syrup, and Chambord shaken with a little bit of ice and served with a raspberry garnish. You can get Chambord sent straight to your house with a discounted delivery on Drizzly. To redeem, visit drizzly.com and use gift Chambord, all caps, one word, at checkout. Remember, please drink responsibly. This offer is valid now through March 15th, 2022. Subject to to Drizzly terms and conditions, void where prohibited. Available to new Drizzly users only. Chambord Black Raspberry Liqueur, 16.5 ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Chambord is a registered trademark. It's Brittany. February has arrived. Happy Lunar New Year. And of course, happy Black History Month. So let me mind my black business and let y'all know something. Black History Month was actually not created for corporate virtue signaling. I know, it's shocking. Carter G. Woodson, the godfather of black history, once said, if a race has no history, if it has no worthwhile tradition, it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and it stands in danger of being exterminated. Dr. Woodson would go on to create Negro History Week in 1926 to teach black history in segregated Southern schools. He chose February to honor Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass's birthdays, along with some black celebrations that were happening at the time. And in the early 70s, Negro History Week became Black History Month. But I dare not say the rest is history, the rest is present as black history is being made every day by black folks across the globe who are creating more and discovering more, designing equitable worlds and leading transformation. So I'm thinking about black history and black futures, ones that will be erased if some screaming conservative parents and politicians have anything to do with it. Black History Month was never meant to be a corporate holiday or the repetition of the same five black names in your child's school presentation. It is meant to declare that every place a black person stands is our rightful place, both then and now. It is meant to be a revolution, and we are the ones who can help make it so. We are undistracted. On the show today, Dr. Uche Blackstock. I'll be talking to the founder of Advancing Health Equity about the current state of COVID and why it's important that we all remain vigilant. We all have pandemic fatigue, but there's certain ones of us that are more privileged that can afford to say, you know what, I'm, I'm over and done with this. The job that I have doesn't expose me. I can work from home. But the fact is it's mostly low income workers that are getting infected, hospitalized and dying. That's coming up, but first, it's your untrending news. 
So we talked last week about the fact that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer will soon be retiring and that President Biden plans to nominate a black woman to the court. This week, predictably, the backlash against that from the right was out in full force, with politicians dismissing Biden's promise as, quote, affirmative action. That's wrong for a bunch of reasons. First of all, it is ignorant of history. Both Reagan and Trump intentionally nominated women. And besides, our courts have plenty of talented black women who are beyond qualified. Here's NYU professor Melissa Murray, who's reportedly also being considered for the role. I'm reminded of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words, when will there be enough women on the court? When there are nine, there could easily be nine black women who could fill all of the seats on the Supreme Court. You damn right. Bottom line, the right's affirmative action take discredits the brains and the talent of these highly qualified women, who are not monolithic, by the way. My hope is that we will have a black progressive woman on the bench, one who is not only a black woman, but who makes life better for black women. Because history shows that when it's better for us, everybody wins. Next up, unsurprisingly, teachers in this country are stressed the hell out and looking for the exit doors. A poll just released by the National Education Association found that 55% of educators are planning to leave the profession earlier than planned. Why? You can probably guess it. Massive burnout. There are currently half a million fewer educators in America's public schools today than there were before the pandemic, which means that the teachers who are left are stretched thin by trying to provide for students in the most desperate of circumstances. And the burden has fallen heaviest on teachers of color who were more likely in this poll to say they were thinking of leaving. Here's Becky Pringle, the head of the NEA, who's been calling the situation a five alarm fire. The people who have dedicated their lives to educating America's students, pushing through fear, pushing through exhaustion, pushing through teaching 80 students in a class, not getting lunch during the day. We've got to care for them because if we don't, then we're going to have an even bigger crisis. Now, you know, I used to be a third grade teacher, so sadly, I get this. The NEA is rightfully calling on our governments, local, state, and federal, to improve working conditions and, hello, wages for teachers. Personally, I'd like to see every single candidate running for office grilled on this issue because it is absolutely that important. Now, heads up, our last story is about suicide, so please take care while listening. Last weekend, it was announced that former Miss USA Chesley Christ died by suicide. She was only 30 years old. It's heartbreaking, and the problem is sadly bigger than Chesley. Last week, Kevin Ward, the first openly gay mayor of Hyattsville, Maryland, right next door to where I live, also died by suicide. And so did Regina King's son, Ian Alexander Jr. Here's Vivica Fox, who's a friend of the family, speaking on the issue. COVID and everything has got everybody in a dark spot. If y'all see any signs of someone being in distress, check on them because, you know, I've never thought about suicide in our community, how so many people are taking their own lives that don't want to be here. That's the scary part. <sighs> what is going on? Between 2014 and 2019, the suicide rate increased by 30% for Black people, and the data is especially stark for our young ones. Over the past 20 years, suicide attempts have risen nearly 80% in Black adolescents. And in 2019, suicide was the second leading cause of death among Black people ages 15 through 24. 
I didn't know any of these people personally, but I do know that so many of us suffer through our struggles and our traumas without the support we need. We must reduce the stigma and increase access to care. I've been there and thank God I'm still here. If you or someone you know needs immediate support, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or by phone or text to Blackline at 1-800-604-5841. Coming up, I'll be talking to Dr. Uche Blackstock about the real reasons why Black people and people of color are most impacted by the pandemic right after this short break. Our sponsor, Shambord, cares about championing underrepresented groups and creating a more inclusive world. They're partnering with us on the Undistracted Spotlight to amplify the brands of BIPOC women and gender nonconforming entrepreneurs. And for today's episode, we want to shout out Lisa Marsh, founder of Miss P's Gluten Free. Lisa lost her mom, Miss P, and her health in the same year. After realizing her health issues were actually due to a gluten intolerance, Lisa went on a mission to find delicious gluten-free snacks, but quickly realized she would have to make them herself. To honor her mom, who taught her that she could do whatever she put her mind to, she officially launched Miss P's Gluten-Free as a business in December of 2015. Her products were on the shelves at Whole Foods the very next year. You can learn about her business and get some of her tasty treats at misspgfree.com. The Undistracted Spotlight is brought to you by our sponsor, Chambord Liqueur. I want to tell y'all about a podcast I know you will love. It's called Well-Read Black Girl, and it's the literary kickback you never knew you needed. Author Glory Adams sits down with your favorite authors of color for closed conversations on art, social justice, and the power of the written word. Luminaries like Tarana Burke, Gabrielle Union, Anita Hill, and more discuss how they found their voice, honed their skill, and composed some of the most interesting and impactful writing of the day. You'll meet Black bookstore owners, literary advocates, and members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club, a community Glory started in 2015 to find out what they're reading and what it means to be well-read. Whether you're an aspiring writer, a total bookworm, or you just want to peek behind the page of some of the brightest minds around, this show is definitely for you. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. So from black history to black futures, I shudder to think about a single truth of this pandemic that continues to haunt me. Because of COVID-19, black American life expectancy dropped nearly three years. Latine folks lost nearly two years. And overall, the U.S. average life expectancy is the lowest it's been in 15 years. And even after two plus years, there's still a ton of confusion and a lot of offensive perspectives in the air. You know, like, let's move on. I'm over the pandemic. Guess what, baby? The pandemic ain't over you. It is still a massive threat to people who are disabled, immunocompromised, elderly and children. Even those long haulers who are young and were in great health will tell you just how devastating COVID can be. So how do we care for one another? How do we tackle this latest phase and prepare for the next ones? All while knowing the most marginalized are still suffering economically and yes, physically. 
Dr. Uche Blackstock is a physician based in New York and a prominent thought leader on bias and racism in healthcare. I sat down with her this past week to clear up some of the confusion, as well as talk about the systemic racism behind severe COVID rates. Dr. Uche Blackstock, it is so great to have you here. It's been spreading like wildfire, right? But there's been so much news about the relative mildness of Omicron. And it's led a lot of people, including some medical experts, to declare that like the worst is over, despite the surge in hospitalizations. I'm curious what you think. Just how cautious do we really need to be? Right. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Brittany. And what I will say is I totally agree with your concern. I think that there is this mainstream media narrative that even some of my colleagues have adopted. Mm. And I think it's because, you know, we all have pandemic fatigue, but there's certain ones of us that are more privileged that can afford to say, you know what, I'm, I'm over and done with this because the job that I have doesn't expose me to being infected. I actually, I can work from home or I essentially have the means to keep myself safe. But the fact is, is that when you look at COVID infection rates and you stratify it by income, it's mostly low-income workers that are getting infected, hospitalized, and dying from COVID. It's people who are uninsured. And so that's why I try to be incredibly thoughtful, especially when I'm on air or even on social media, about how I portray that narrative. Because the fact is, is that Omicron is not the last variant. And I say, I say Omicron is a gift, and I know people sometimes don't understand that, but it's a gift because could you imagine if we had a variant that was as virulent, meaning it causes as severe disease as Delta, but as transmissible, meaning as contagious as Omicron? Mm. Everything would be at a standstill because right. our hospital systems would have been absolutely broken. People would be in the streets. Yeah. You know, like it, it just would be a horrible, horrible situation. But we don't want to get there. And so one thing that I've been talking a lot about is really we need to think about policies on a local, state and federal level that are going to keep everybody safe and that we cannot pull back on any of those measures until we reduce the cases. And we are not there yet. I mean, you talk about making sure that we don't pull back on the measures. Meanwhile, other people have been making claims that like everybody is going to get exposed to COVID or everybody is going to get COVID. So we just might as well get on with our lives. That makes me terrified, quite frankly, because it seems like that's a really big gamble against unknown odds, especially for people whose health conditions put them at a high risk for serious effects, right? Right. And the thing is, it doesn't necessarily have to happen that everyone's going to get infected, Mm -hmm. right? There are countries in Asia, for example, that actually have done a really great job of controlling the spread of coronavirus. And when people hear you know, us talking about Asian countries, they're assuming we're talking about lockdown situations. But no, the fact is, is that certain, yes, certain behavior is limited. You can't go to a club with a thousand people, but you may be able to go with 500 people. Like there are certain restrictions that are in place and still in place two plus years in this pandemic that keep people safe. And I think we have to think about the collective. And that's something I think other cultures do. That is not, you know, something that we find in in U.S. slash American culture. Mm -hmm. Everyone's out for themselves. They're not caring about people who are immunocompromised, people who are elderly, children who still are not eligible to be vaccinated. That makes me think about the hashtag started by our friend Imani Barbarin, my disabled life is worthy, right? Because it's been highlighting the disability community's frustrations with this privileged, and I would really say cruel, attitude. 
Yes. And, and I'm so grateful to Imani and her voice and, and those of, you know, other people with disabilities um, that are on social media that are bringing attention to this. Because, you know, when Dr. Walensky of the CDC sort of, you know, was talking about hospitalizations from Omicron and saying, oh, but it's only people who have multiple risk factors. Mm-hmm. So we actually are sort of pleased with how the vaccines are, are behaving. But it's like, no, 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 let's let's step back. <laughs> right. First of all, we really want to try to have a collective response and that that is deeply rooted in the tenets of public health. And that is really what is best for the collective good. Mm -hmm. And so when we're not thinking about people with disabilities, we are essentially excluding them. We're not considering, you know, what does it look like to have to navigate a society that doesn't care about how you do, but they're okay because they're fully vaccinated and boosted and, you know, overall good health. They don't have to worry about getting sick. Yeah. I mean, it's a gamble for immunocompromised people, for disabled people. It's also a gamble for parents, particularly with children under five, like you said. Right. Um, And child hospitalization rates have hit some record highs. You have two school-aged children in New York. What factors are you personally considering when you're deciding whether or not to send them back to school? Are they going to that birthday party? Are you sending them out into the world in general? How are you thinking about that? Right. And and what I'll say, Brittany, is that I want to just step back and say this schooling, as we know, education is an equity issue. Yes. This decision that parents have to make, I think, is a decision that no parent should have to make. But the fact is, is that there's so much variation in, you know, between public schools and private schools and Mm -hmm. resources that they have. And we know sort of the legacy of education in public schools. The infrastructure in public schools is not what it should be. My children are in New York City public schools. Mm And their principal and assistant principal, they're Black women who are just amazing and I know are taking care of my babies, but they also are incredibly transparent with communication. They have town halls. They tell us, this is what we're going to do. These are the policies. You know, everyone is going to wear a mask Mm -hmm. at a minimum. I can't even imagine being a parent in a city or state where the mask mandates are being restricted Mm -hmm. in a school because schools are not inherently safe. They're safe if you put these public health measures in place. So are the windows open? Are there air purifiers in the room? You know, what percentage of the students are vaccinated? What percentage of the teachers are vaccinated? So all of that matters, but there is such variability across the country, depending on the community, Mm -hmm. right, that we cannot inherently say that schools are safe. So that's why I always say that there should be a remote learning option. Yeah. Also, given the history, you know, societal institutions have always proven to be untrustworthy, mm-hmm. especially to our communities. So that's why early in the pandemic, when Black parents, Latinx parents were saying, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable sending my kids to school. But white parents were saying, you know what, they're going to be OK. But we're, we're, we're talking about different communities, different resources. It's not the same. So let's talk about some of those rules, because this conversation has been deeply clarifying already. But at the end of last year, at the end of 2021, the CDC issued some adjustments to their guidelines, and they didn't make a lot of sense to everyone. They didn't make a lot of sense to me. They got a lot of backlash for cutting down the isolation time if you are tested positive with COVID from 10 days to five. Right. To what extent has the CDC and its messaging and perhaps the people that influence (laughs) them (laughs) been adding to all of this collective confusion? Yeah, you know, you know, it's so interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic, we were concerned that the CDC's work was being heavily, heavily influenced by the Trump administration, mm-hmm. that we weren't hearing from them. And so I thought with the change in administration, 
you know, there would be a 180. Well, unfortunately, I feel like they've stumbled. And you've mentioned some of those stumbles already. And most recently was that the isolation guideline, which, you know, you hear it, you're saying, okay, people don't need to stay home for 10 days. They can stay home for five days if they're infected and then leave with a mask and no rapid tests to make sure that they're not contagious. Right. And, you know, I think for many of us, we're like, that seems to be driven not by public health ideals, but more by profit mm-hmm. and financial concerns, right? And that's essentially what it was. We, you know, we, we have this contagious virus that is essentially causing societal disruption. People are homesick. They can't go to work. If they're nurses or physicians, they can't go to work to help take care of the sick people. Yeah. Um, or if they're essential workers, you know, everything is just going to um, go to the wayside. So essentially they changed the guidelines to make people work, (laughs) you know, and and not honoring the humanity of people needing paid sick leave or needing paid isolation or quarantine leave Mm -hmm. or making sure that people have insurance, health insurance, so they can go make sure that they're okay before they go back to work. Right. And so I think these guidelines and these these missteps that CDC has made has really undermined the public's trust. So when I am on MSNBC talking about this, this, this is what CDC says, you know, people are like, hmm, but can I trust them? <laughs> right. And I can't be mad. I can't be mad at them because I think that is a valid question. I, You know, this is what I appreciate about you so much, Dr. Blackstock, because you are not just coming with justified complaint, frustration, you are also clearly coming with solutions, right? I mean, I follow you on Twitter and you've been talking consistently about the kind of layered protections, systemic protections that you believe need to be in place. Free masks, rapid tests for everyone, indoor mask policies in public places, air travel vaccine mandates, non-essential workers being able to work from home, the kind of leave that you're talking about, the remote school option, Why are we not seeing this level of systemic response? Well, I mean, one, I think it boils down to politics. That's a factor. I mean, if we're going to be really honest about it, when the Biden administration transitioned in, Mm -hmm. when you look at the list of what they wanted to do, a lot of that, what you just mentioned, was in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, you know, obviously there was a lot of pushback from GOP leadership about it. So instead of saying, okay, let's keep going, I, I do think they bent to to that political pressure, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, the other concern is, I think, financial economic interests, right? I think they're concerned about the economy. They want the economy to do well. And so they think the economy will do well if you keep everything open. But the fact is, is if this virus is not contained, right, if we don't put those measures in place and make sure public health is good, the economy is never going to be good. Yeah. And people are certainly struggling financially. They're struggling with their health. I think people are also just tired. People are tired because of the pandemic and people are also tired of the pandemic. Right. So you talked about that, that pandemic fatigue before. How do you um, measure that as part of what's going on? Do you feel like that's contributing to it? No, no, absolutely. That's a, that, that is another factor. And the fact is, is that I think we all are tired of it. Mm. But I think a lot of us, depending on our privilege, what kind of work we do, what communities yeah. we live in, you know, that impacts whether or not we're like, okay, but we still need to be staying safe. We yeah. still need to be looking out for our neighbors and our community. And other people just like, you know what, I'm like, I'm fully boosted. If I get it, I won't have to go to the hospital. You know, I'll probably not feel well for a few days, but I'm, but I'm good. Yeah. So again, I think it's that culture, you know, that individualism, that personal responsibility, you know, that, that American exceptionalism in that way, yeah. I, I think is, is contributing to a big faction 
of even medical experts saying, you know what, let's just learn to live with this. But the thing is, yes, COVID is going to become endemic, meaning there's going to be a steady state with occasional outbreaks, but they're, they're going to be well controlled. It's not endemic yet when we have an exponential rise in cases, when there are still tens of thousands of people in the hospital mm-hmm. and, our, and our hospitals are at capacity. That's not what endemic means. I mean, you point specifically to the amount of privilege um, that dictates how so many of us are looking at this. If we zoom out, we know that the pandemic has definitely brought to light a lot of the stark inequalities in this country, right? Uh, and so, absolutely, certainly, a lot of that inequality is true when it comes to healthcare. What has the data revealed so far about the underlying structural racism at play? Right. And even when when you mentioned the pediatric hospitalizations, I meant to mention that when you look at pediatric deaths, it's mostly Black and Latinx children that have died from COVID, disproportionately Mm. so. And so we have these factors, they're called social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. right? They are what, what determines how healthy a person is or a community is. That's job, that's education, transportation, access to health care. And we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, and we've seen it since in surges, but we know that, that Black people and other people of color are most impacted because of the kind of work that we have, that we fact that we are essential workers and service workers. And we see that when we look at the demographics of who is infected, hospitalized, and who is dying, even how our housing, the fact that we are more likely to live in multi-generational mm-hmm. housing, that also is a risk factor as well. The fact that our schools don't have the infrastructure for proper air filtration and ventilation, right? Or even social distancing, the fact that our classrooms are more likely to be overcrowded mm. and the fact that we don't have access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Or if we do have access to healthcare, it's not quality healthcare, mm-hmm. right? And so we saw all of those factors ongoing throughout the pandemic as contrib- contributing factors to why we have been so disproportionately impacted um, by this virus. I remember at the very beginning, back in 2020, I was doing a late night segment on Ali Velshi. He asked me about COVID, which I wasn't expecting, right? Because it was this kind of new and simmering thing. And most certainly, I do not have your background. I'm not a medical expert, but I do read. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I understand that the comorbidities that we're seeing, the pre-existing conditions that we're seeing that interact particularly with COVID are ones that disproportionately affect Black and brown people, asthma, diabetes, all of these kinds of things because of the systemic issues in healthcare that you're talking about. And when I said that on air, I thought I was just saying like two plus two equals four. And the kind of response I got, you would have thought I said to burn down the White House. I mean, people were so angry. Oh, yes. That we were pointing out this really normal thing. The backlash has had to be just outrageous for you. Oh, 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 yes. I mean, right. You're pointing out essentially the obvious. Yeah. And I will say that even when I when I first heard about the virus in Wuhan and, and as, as physicians and, and I was working in urgent care, then they sent us a description of which patients in China were at risk. And I saw the list and I said, oh, no, mm. diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, asthma. I said, our communities are going to be most impacted by this. And so even before it got here, I had written a piece about that, how I was worried that our communities were going to be just devastated um, by COVID. But the fact is, is that it's easier for the majority to ascribe personal responsibility Mm. for someone getting sick than to say this is a systemic issue because that's admitting that one, there's a lot of work to do and that two, that the system is just racist and racist in every institution, including healthcare. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the fact is, and I always say this, like black and brown communities have been placed at risk mm. for doing poorly if exposed and infected with coronavirus because there's nothing biological, biologically deficient yeah. about our bodies, but it's what happens to our health, our bodies by living in a society with systemic racism. And they're just all of these factors that are worsening our health, basically, and they worsen our health outcomes. That phrase placed at risk is so powerful, both because it rightfully places faults on systems and not on individuals, but also it reminds us that these are the results of active choices, that this is not a passive result, that there were choices and decisions that were made that got us to the place where, you know, the COVID death rate for Black people is more than twice as high as it is for for white people. For Latinx folks, it's 50% higher. These are the realities that you're discussing. Absolutely. And back in 2020, in June, you testified in front of the U.S. House Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis about these racial health inequities. What were some of your recommendations and where do we stand on those? You know, it's interesting because I think when I testified... I think I may have brought up redlining because Mm -hmm. I wanted to tie in how federal policies, even federal housing policies and housing discrimination have impacted our communities. The point where we are seeing these health inequities, we saw them before COVID and we're seeing them worsen during COVID. But a lot of my recommendations to them were based on the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. It was based on investing in affordable housing. It was also based on improving the infrastructure in our schools. It was based on expanding Medicaid so that people have health insurance. So it was all, they were all policy-based recommendations because we know if systemic racism is what worsens our outcomes, we need policy-based solutions to improve the health. This is not about telling someone that you need to go and eat more vegetables or you need to take your blood pressure medications, right? This is acknowledging that there are deeply embedded systemic problems that have been here historically and that are still here in the current day that are impacting the health of our communities. So when people ask me, how can we protect our communities from COVID? Yes, there are short term, give people access to personal protective equipment, make sure they have paid sick leave, uh, make sure that there are policies in place like indoor Mm -hmm. mass mandates to keep them safe. But long term, we need to invest federal funding in our communities. I I even talked about reparations when I talked to the House Select Committee, because again, this pandemic is another reminder of how how much our communities have lost in terms of funding, in terms of human suffering and lives. And so reparations is one way to address that. Amen to that. I mean, your your brilliance on all of this is hard-earned. It's also generational. I know you are a second-generation physician. Your late mother was the original Dr. Blackstock. And your sister is a primary care physician. Yes. But your story is atypical, right? You've noted that today only 6% of physicians are Black, and Black women account for less than 3% of U.S. doctors, while Black people, of course, represent 13% of the population. I know in my own life, finding a Black doctor has been a challenge. I remember I had a Black pediatrician growing up in St. Louis, and there were two Black pediatricians, and like all the Black kids in St. Louis either went to Dr. Tillman or the other one. Like that's, we were all there because there were only two. So beyond challenging structural racism through policy and practices, what else can be done to truly not just diversify the medical field, but to make the whole healthcare workforce a place of equity and justice? 
So I, I think of two things. I think of a, a pipe, the pipeline issue, the fact that, you know, we need to prepare mm-hmm. more Black and brown children to work within the healthcare workforce if that is something that they want. And that starts like even before K through 12, right? Mm-hmm. That starts with really investing in education with our, within our communities. But I think also for non-Black and brown people that work in the healthcare workforce, they need to understand the biases they come in with, mm-hmm. the history, the current day discrimination that often they perpetuate in providing care. And that education, I think, also has to happen before medical school. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about, you know, the, this whole debate over critical race theory, what it really is, is we need to teach all children yeah. the real history, right? And, and that is going to be so important to how people show up as physicians when they see patients. Absolutely. And you started your own organization to address this advancing health equity to really focus on these issues of diversity, inclusion, equity in healthcare. You believe that every healthcare organization, not just the ones led by uh, BIPOC folks or marginalized folks, every health organization should be committed to closing the gap in racialized health outcomes. Absolutely. And it was my own experiences as a Black woman, as a Black woman physician, Mm. you know, navigating predominantly white spaces, you know, taking care of patients that look like me, knowing the data in terms of the outcomes that really motivated me to, to found Advancing Health Equity. And we've been working with all different types of healthcare organizations, also around workplace culture, because we know if the culture within a healthcare organization is inequitable, that it's eventually going to trickle down to the care that is provided or to how medical students learn, right? Mm-hmm. How doctors are taught. So that, that, that's what's motivated me. Powerful stuff. Before I leave you, I have to get back to where we are now with COVID. You know, there's some hope that we're at a turning point. But despite that, this entire situation still has so many Americans, myself included, questioning why the supposed richest, most perfect country in the entire world has the most COVID deaths. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we need universal, accessible, equitable health care. What do you think it will take for us to finally achieve that? You know what? I think... I think we'll probably see it, maybe not in our lifetime, but I think we're seeing it a little bit with Medicaid expansions. Mm -hmm. But essentially, we're seeing in certain states with GOP leadership, we're not seeing the expansions happen. And so the people on the ground, the grassroots efforts, the organizers still have to really work towards uh, universal health care. I know there are a lot of health care professionals, including myself, Mm -hmm. who feel strongly about it. It's about who you vote for on the local level. We know that makes a difference. And we have to continue our advocacy. But I also am concerned that universal health care is something that we may not see in this lifetime, but we really have to keep pushing for it because we know that just even having universal health care will change and improve health outcomes, especially in our communities. Well, we've got our marching orders from you, Dr. Blackstock. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for all that you do to keep us informed um, and to make sure that everyone from the government to our health organizations are doing the right thing. (laughs) Thank you so much, Brittany. Dr. Uche Blackstock is a physician and the founder of Advancing Health Equity. I hope you heard what she said. Black and brown communities have been placed at risk. Language matters, and Dr. Blackstock's very careful choice of an active verb 
It tells us all we need to know. This did not just happen. It was not an accident. These disproportionate, deadly outcomes are the results of generations of medical apartheid that continue to place the most vulnerable at risk. There's an old African greeting that's really a question. How are the children? When I worked in education full time, I had that question taped to the wall above my desk because I needed the answer to that most simple question to dictate every action I took. In truth, the question begs us to consider the most vulnerable, not because they can't fend for themselves, but because any society can measure its success and its values by how well or how poorly it treats the most vulnerable and most marginalized. How are the children? How are the disabled? How are the elderly, the poor, the people of color? This pandemic has been a tragic reminder that none of us are well or receiving the kind of care and liberation we deserve. I know we're all tired, but we are a community and only community care will keep us safe and squash this thing once for all. So stay cautious. We will not get through this thing unless it's together. That's it for today, but never for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is the indomitable Rachel Matlow, and it's been an incredible 50 episodes. We're grateful for all that you have brought this podcast and this community. Best of luck in your future endeavors. We're always indebted to you. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, thanks for being, and thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free.